This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's up, Walkheaders? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. You actually got me and Colin here today. We're sitting down with our man, Scott. At Latham and Watkins, Scott, in from Austin, man. Thanks for coming. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. Uh, looking forward to talking to you guys again. So. You might, uh, might recognize uh, Scott if you were at Energy Tech Night and saw him going through the hot wing <laughs> challenge. Man, dude, you were a champ, though. Like, people were talking about it. Like Those hot wings just did not seem to phase you. Uh, eating spicy food for a long time. So, uh, I get, you know, th- they were good. They were good. It but, broke uh, me off. I thought the yeah. whole point was to break you off. But you me. said now you're into it, right? I'm into it. Yeah. Now. So. Yeah. It like changed my taste buds forever. There you go. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, you handled it like a champ. So yeah. I can tell that you didn't, you, you prepared for it. So we wanted <laughs> to bring you in today because, um, you know, a few weeks ago I had posted something. It's like, you know, we're raising capital for digital wildcatters and wanted to start creating content, like documenting the process of raising capital because in the energy industry, um, it's just kind of this um, vague thing. And there's not a lot of good information out there from people in the energy industry that are actually raising. And so um, it's great to have you on today to talk about um, capital raises and building startups, um, especially from the legal uh, perspective and the legal angle. And um, so, you know, I think that we should start off with, you know, first kind of tell us your background and your experience and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, I, I've been doing venture capital law and helping uh, venture back companies for 17, 18 years now, uh, all in Austin. Uh, but, you know, being in Austin, you're kind of as far as Texas goes, you're kind of on the front end of the the tech boom. Um, but I have represented companies from incorporation all the way through uh, IPO. And we did the Rackspace IPO a long, long time ago. But you know, we we really work to help companies grow. I mean, that's that's essentially what I always see my role as with with private companies is is we want to work with companies that have plans for high growth and want to grow uh, yeah. because there's a lot of growing pains that come with that. And that's what we're there for. Yeah. So, uh, you know, whether it's one round or multi multiple rounds, we are helping our companies grow, grow, grow until they get to that exit. Yeah. So from your experience, is it all based around capital raising and finance or are there ele- other elements that you focus on too as a company grows? Because I mean, as a company grows, um, different liabilities, um, things of that nature come up. And so is it kind of across the full spectrum or do you really just focus on capital raising? No, I'm basically outside general counsel to most of my clients. So I, I'm, I always say I'm a point guard and I, I do the capital raising, I do the M&A, but you know, whether it's, you know, employment law, employee equity, uh, technology, commercial contracts, privacy, international things, like we've got specialists and most law firms have specialists that handle all of that. So yeah. I get called, then I pass it off to whoever is going to work on it. But as far as, you know, what's important, I think we like to get in as early as possible because there are mistakes that can be made when the company's formed that can create real problems at the first financing, or maybe it's even missed for a while and it creates problems later. Yeah. Uh, you know, the obvious one is just if there's multiple founders, what that what that's going to look like. Um you know, we've we've seen situations in the past where three or four people start a company and, you know, six months in, one of them really isn't into it anymore and wants to hit eject. 
and there's not a way to claw back that person's shares. And all of a sudden you've got, you know, a quarter of your cap table that's sort of dead weight. Mm -hmm. uh, and investors don't like that. So you know, that's just an example. But there are a lot of other things around IP, trade secrets, uh, confidentiality that you can tie up really early and can create really good internal controls uh, that'll make you look really good to the investors when you go raise your Series C to your Series A, when you go to those institutionals that are going to really diligence your uh, your company. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's um, important to think about. You know, a lot of people just start building and they don't um, think about ramifications and second, third order effects down the road. And so not only just from a financing perspective, but from, you know, your company structure and cap table and things of that nature. And so, um, you know, let's talk about when a company actually starts. Let's talk about the early yeah. stage and let's kind of. Let's take it like this. Let's like start off like we're going to build an early stage company and we're going to take it all the way through IPO. What should we call this company? Let's call let's let's make them a fake company. Uh, we got a tennis ball here on the table. So how about uh, Analog Tigers? Uh, <laughs> analog Tigers. Yeah. I like it. The, the the analog puppies or something something like that will go the opposite of the cats. Yeah. So um, we're starting a company and what do we need to look for? Let's say even before a pre-seed um, uh, financing? Um, you know, look, companies don't have a lot of money when they start, so you gotta be practical. I, you know, if, if lawyers wanna come in and have want you to do everything perfect, but that's not always practical. So, you know, you should do a, um, a basic review of what you can find on the internet to make sure that you're, you're, the name of your company is not taken, you know, your logo that you might wanna put together is not taken, that, that, that's cursory. You don't need to go dive in and go to the trademark office and figure that out, but, if you do something that's already taken right away, it's a it's a big waste of time. So just do a little bit of that work. Uh, um, obviously, what I talked about earlier is, okay, how are the founders going to split things? Who's going to be what officer? How are we going to go forward? How are we going to present ourselves to the outside world? Um, you know, one of the key inflection points early on prior to funding is you start hiring employees. And one of the mistakes will – it's hard to say it's a mistake, but one of the problems we see are – or is – classification and whether someone's a contractor or an employee and early on they're like, I'm not paying him anything. I'm just giving him equity. Well, what is he? Oh, he's my, he's my CFO. Well, presumptively a CFO is an employee and you're supposed to be paying them a certain amount because mm -hmm. state of Texas, IRS wants their cut. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, it, it, a lot of startups sort of whistle past the graveyard on it. And then once they get some initial funding, they correct it and it's fine. We've seen others that just, keep it up and they just aren't paying attention to it. And, and it can create real problems again when an institutional investor comes in and does diligence and they say, these people were classified as, you're, you know, you're paying these people by the hour, they should have been paid an exempt salary or, or they sh their contractors really were employees and you should have been withholding this whole time. And, and so th that can be a real pain to clean up. It's nothing that can't be overcome, yeah. but it costs money. It, um, time. It, it time on the, on, and, and you know, it can be embarrassing to, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with the institutionals. Yeah. Um, it's always, yeah. it's like, I mean, I get it. Like, you know, we bootstrapped and ran by the seat of our pants and it's like, sometimes you just stuff gets pushed to the back burner and then, but then you, you just gotta survive. Yeah. yeah you're you know, trying, it's like trying to survive, but then when it comes time for, you know, institutional financing, like you're not on top of your stuff. And so. Let's talk about this. I have a, a very specific question in the early stages. You know, a lot of companies will go out and they'll say, hey, we need to start an entity and they'll opt for an LLC. Mm -hmm. 
um, over a uh, Delaware C Corp. Uh, most of the time, probably just out of um, ignorance. Mm -hmm. And we did the same thing on Digital Wildcatters. You know, when we started, we started off as an LLC. We thought it was good for us then. Then ended up having to pay a good chunk of money to convert to a Delaware C Corp. Um, so let's talk about that. Like at the beginning of incorporation, um, how should founders be thinking about um, how uh, or what structure they should be using? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the type of company. I'm, I'm one of the few venture attorneys that will really, I, I really want to think about the structure because you're right, it's kind of a default Delaware corporation if I'm going to go raise venture capital. And mm -hmm. yeah, nine times out of 10, that's right. Um, but the issue is you can start as an LLC and convert to a corporation. You can't go the other way around once the company has any value. Mm -hmm. um, it creates a massive tax hit on the founders. Mm -hmm. So I think when we talk to companies, if they're software companies and they're the typical kind of profile for a venture-backed company, yeah, just start as a Delaware Corp. It's easier. The employee equity piece of it's easier. You're, then you won't ever have to do the conversion. Uh, in the energy tech space, you know, it's thinking of it more broadly, there are a lot of companies that are um, more like hard science, not software. Yeah. And, and, and there's some world depending on what their return profile looks like, that maybe it's better for them to be an LLC. We've, we, I've run into that a couple of times where one and one fundraise and another cash flow positive and they can start distributing cash to their investors. Well, if it's a corporation, you get taxed at the corporation level and you get taxed at the shareholder level. Mm. Um, but like I said, nine times out of 10, you want to be a Delaware Corp. There's, you know, Early on, the stock is qualified small business stock, which has yeah. tax incentives. Uh, the so investors, let's talk, yeah. let's talk about that real sure, quick. Sure, sure. As, as you say, stuff we'll unpack it, but let's talk yeah, about yeah. Uh, QSBS, which is uh, qualified small business. Uh, what's the stock? Other? Stock. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hate acronyms. Um, but essentially, and you can correct me on this, um, but QSBS is essentially this, uh, uh, this structure where all of your equity under it um, is free of uh, capital gains tax up to $10 million mm -hmm. um, for both the team and the investors. And so it's a pretty cool structure to utilize um, if you're not trying to pay the government taxes, which I'm always trying not to, <laughs> yeah. not to do that. So um, talk about QSBS a little bit and what the process for that is. Yeah, I mean, I, there's really not a process from the company side. It Ultimately, the investors or the, the stockholders' decision to make with their tax, with their accountants and, and the people that are their tax preparers. But essentially, any shares issued in a corporation in the U.S. Out, you know, there's some exceptions, but any tech company really I can throw in there uh, that are when the company's got fifty million dollars or less in assets uh, can be qualified small business stock. And there's some exceptions, and you want to talk to your lawyers. And I'll preface: I'm not a tax attorney, so I can get over my skis quickly here. But um, you know, ultimately. You're right. It's if you've got qualified small business stock and you hold it for five years, then uh, the first I think it's the first ten million of gain you don't have to pay taxes on. That's and, sweet. You know, the reason the venture capitalists like it is, as I understand it, um, at, at, under the way it works currently, they can pass that up if they're passed through. They can pass it up to their LP. So each LP gets to see up to ten million dollars. Oh, gain. nice. Yeah. And so that's why it's really crucial to them. You know, it's funny is uh, I was on the phone with Carta last week and. Um, you know, if you don't know what Carta is, Carta's cap table management software for startups and really good software. And anyways, I was on the phone with their uh, sales team and they're like, do you have QSBS? I was like, yeah, we do. And they're like, uh, do you have a uh, um, attestation letter? And I was like, the guy's from, he's from Jersey. 
And so we have like classic miscommunication between a Jersey accent and a Texas accent. I was like, out of station? He's like, yeah, out of station. (laughs) And I could not understand what he was saying. I was like, I don't think we have an out of station letter. And then went back to our attorneys, Paul Sinelli. I was like, hey, do you know what an out of station (laughs) letter is? And anyways, so um, yeah, you know, the, the QSBS, when I learned about that last year, I was like, oh shit, that's, that's cool. Yeah, and, and 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 it's the reason most companies are Delaware Corps because corporations are easier than if you can have that kind of tax uh, benefit on the gain. It's you know takes away some of the double taxation issue that you have on a corporation. Um, there's things that can bust it, so you have to be careful. Always talk to your attorneys. Um, investors want the reps that the stock's going to be QSBS. Um, there's things like if if you do a redemption or a repurchase of shares that can prevent stock from being QSBS. And there's just, whenever you're, you know, issuing that, you need to make sure that it, it, if you're making the rep that it actually is QSBS stock. Yeah. So, you know, it sounds like majority of the time in the startup world, Delaware C Corp is probably the way to go, but there are some instances where LLC uh, may make more sense. So you get your entity set up. Um, You know, let's talk about something like a lot of people will go to legal zoom and get documents set up. Um, Legal Zoom, Rocket Lawyer. You know, now we're guilty. Clerky. Clerky's the <laughs> other one. Just using yeah. ChatGPT now. Chat, yeah, yeah. Well, now I'm just, oh. <laughs> I love ChatGPT for generating contracts. Yeah. Scott's probably like, God damn. <laughs> you know, <laughs> take it, then hand it to a lawyer. You probably saved a little time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Honestly. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about that. You know, how, how the importance mm. of making sure that your documents are uh, squared away. Um, even in the early stages? I mean, it, it's really important. There's some things you can't fix. Uh, we talked about founder vesting earlier. Um, if the founders decide, hey, we want to make sure everyone's in this and they they subject their shares to vesting, there's a, something called an 83B that you have to file. Mm-hmm. If you don't file it within 30 days of, of getting those that founder stock, it creates horrible tax consequences for you. And we see people miss that. Uh, but the documents themselves, um, again, we'll, we'll circle back to being practical. Like, you you can it's I think it's better if you find an attorney that can do it for a fixed fee or something to get you started up in a, in the right suite of docs. Um, it's better than using LegalZoom or uh, a clerk or any of those. But again, you just scare the shit out of me because now I'm, I didn't we didn't file an eighty three B election. When you may did, not have had to when we did our conversion. Um, all of our employees, all of our employees have obviously when yeah. they got their. St- their shares, but I'm like, I'm like, well, you're I'm sweating. Like, oh, God. I'm, I'm guessing y'all, y'all, y'all are probably okay, but uh, um, I, I don't want to create any, any problems here, but this, uh, is, a, this is a real episode yeah, that we're doing. Here. This is where Scott comes on and stressing critiques our business. We're going to have a bad no, weekend. Uh, but look, I, 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 I'd always prefer if folks come to us or to another firm that's got like a, a, an incorporation package that you kind of have a fixed fee for. And but at the end of the day, these other services, they've been vetted. They're not perfect, but um, they can get you there. Yeah. But, you know, the, the best way to do it is to, to work with someone that is, it can also do your seed or your A round because they know how to set your docs up. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say, too, is that I think when people go to start a business, the first thing they do is like, I need to get an LLC. I need to get incorporated in Yeah. My advice is always like, hey, go f- focus on product or making money first, because the second that you start setting up an entity, uh, money just starts flowing out and you have, you know, all of these uh, filing fees and things of that nature where when we started Digital Wildcatters. I remember like we had a pretty significant sponsorship check and 
we didn't have an entity. We didn't have a bank account. We didn't have a way to go cash that, <laughs> cash yeah. that actual check. So, but that motivated we us to get it set up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it, look, there's there's liability limitation on the founders by setting the entity up, which is important. Um, and uh, you know, I think you can. We we would always recommend getting the entity done right away, and then like if you don't want to do any of the other work behind it, at least you've got that entity there to open a bank account with and have an EIN number. Yeah. Um, even if you want to wait on your, most of your documents for down the line, uh, you know, if you create value in something and then you start the entity and there's real value there, well, are your shares really par value shares? Like, you know, you know, yeah. and, and so yeah. that's the other reason is you want to start the entity really early. So there's not any value in the company at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. and you know, you start your holding period, all that stuff. But uh, yeah, I think, I think it's, that's, uh, a, that's another thing that we should kind of like dive into is yeah. the tax consequences of, um, shares and equity because, you know, it's pretty much when you incorporate the company, I mean, that's, that's the cap table there. And mm -hmm. then once the, once the, uh, company starts getting value in it and you start having a, uh, 409A valuation, <laughs> I mean, you can't just dole out, you can't just dole out equity without, Tax right. consequences, and so um, let's dive into that a little bit, just so that people can have that in their in their mind in the early stages, and um, understand that you can't just dish out equity in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think if if you look at sort of the Facebook example, that's sort of the textbook one that everyone looks at, where he just was writing letters to people and saying, "I'll give you this percent of the company." Um, you you got to be really careful with that for multiple reasons. One. What is what a percent of what? I'm going to give you five percent of the company. Is it five percent fully diluted? Five percent outstanding? Five percent as of what date? Five mm -hmm. percent perpetually? Like what? What does that mean? Um, and the other thing, to your point, is if unless you're in that founding group that get that are there when the company's formed, uh, or, or or soon after that, there's value value builds in the company, and you can't just give out stock. It's the same as giving out cash. Mm -hmm. And if it's an employee, if you just give the stock out, it's the same as giving out cash. So you have withholding. So no private company should be handing stock stock out to employees mm -hmm. um, because of that. Now that's why we have stock options. Yeah, I was gonna say. So you have restricted stock units, RSUs, yeah. and then you have uh, stock options. And so I guess we can talk about that a little bit sure. because it's one Pros of the cons of each. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the levers of a startup is that hey, you may be cash poor, but what you do have is the ability to um, compensate through equity. But it's not just straight line equity and so you know this is um the 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 topic between rsus and and stock options mm -hmm. is actually pretty complex too. yeah i mean especially the tax considerations and i really wish we had a just easier way <laughs> in this country to kind of uh treat these things but you know the way that i've always looked at rsus is that um rsus are really good for the early employees um kind of represents more straight line equity mm -hmm. Um, and then once you really start kind of scaling the company, options um, are typically um, the best. But would love to hear how you think about it from a legal perspective. Yeah, with 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 respect to RSUs um, for private companies, you know, when they vest, they settle. And so if if I've got RSUs and I get and, and the company's worth a dollar a share when I get them. Mm -hmm. And then the first chunk vests, and at that point the company's worth two dollars a share. It's the same as the company giving me shares at two dollars a share, and so it's taxable. And so the, what they do for RSUs is there's a second vesting trigger for private companies, and it's a change of control. Um, and you know, Facebook, uh, other a lot of the Silicon Valley companies issued a ton of these in the early part of last decade, and into the into the mid late part of last decade. 
but they also have to have, there's got to be a substantial risk of forfeiture. There's got to be an ability to lose them. They're not perpetual. So what you have to put a five or seven year time frame on it. So uh, the, the RSUs are nice in the sense that there's no exercise price. So if you vest, if the company goes public or the company gets sold, then you, you, you get liquid all you, without the, the, the deduct for the exercise price. Yeah. But if that event never happens and you hit that five or seven year mark, whenever that RSU expires, you lose it. Now, there's a lot of creative things being done in the Valley right now and in Austin because a lot of them are expiring. A lot of these were issued in 2013, 14, 15 when companies weren't going public. And the companies that haven't gone public now, the markets are closed and these are these RSUs are expiring and companies are scrambling to figure out what to do because employees are losing equity. So the nice thing about the stock option is, I mean, it only has a 10 year time frame, but uh you know, there's not a taxable event when you issue them as long as the exercise price is fair market value. Mm -hmm. um, there's a certain type of option for employees so that when they exercise their option, they don't have to pay any taxes. Um, and they pay taxes when they sell their option. Yeah. Uh, it, whether they sell it or it's a change in control or whatever. Um, so we guide people away from RSUs typically and, and outside of like, um, you know, Later stage companies where uh, uh, maybe some executives want RSUs, they've seen it before. There's an expectation that the company is going to exit mm -hmm. in the near term. Uh, it can't be too near. There's other issues there. But yeah. um, but we do see RSUs more than we used but to. Like, yeah. I mean, if you had a late stage company yeah. and an executive comes in and is issued RSUs, mm -hmm. I mean, they have to buy those RSUs up front, right? Well, I would say that's more of a uh, a restricted stock grant. Like you could like they're they're buying the shares, so that they're they're actually buying stock, and so that yeah. that'd be a little different than RSUs to me. I always think of RSUs as um, when they settle, especially with public companies, people are just really getting paid the cash yeah. amount, and you're withholding the taxable portion. Because um, the the nice thing about options versus RSUs as well, and at least in the way we use them for private companies, is again the RSUs vest over time, but they have that secondary vesting on a change of control. So you never really get the shares. Mm -hmm. And um, so if, if you if the company gets bought, you you get that, uh, um, you get paid for every share, like the full amount, yeah. but you're gonna get taxed at ordinary income because you yeah. haven't held them. Yeah. So an option you could exercise, hold it for a year and get, you know, if you meet the rules behind the options, which we don't have to get into the weeds on that, but there's a way to get capital gain, short-term or long-term capital gains yeah, so the, on the, options. The two things to keep into consideration on equity here is ordinary tax or, or yeah. ordinary income tax and then capital gains tax. Yeah, yeah. And so you have two different forms of tax. Capital gains tax is, you know, gonna be more kind of like appreciation on asset, ordinary income tax is like regular compensation. Yeah. You know, you're getting you're getting paid. And so um, you know, this stuff's like way over, way over my head too. I mean, it's like, there's some pretty complex yeah. modeling and scenarios for them, but you know, I liked RSUs for early employees cause it's like, Hey, you, you know, essentially there's zero value in the company right. if you don't have a 409A valuation. So you can get these. And then once there's a liquidation event, mm -hmm. boom, yeah. um, and yeah, you're going to pay, um, tax on them, but if you're structured under QSBS, you know, it's capital, it's free of capital gains tax. Um, and the stock options, I think what's interesting is, um, you know, the exercise, when you exercise it, having to put up the money to actually exercise the, uh, the option, which has created yeah. this whole business model in itself where you have companies that'll lend out that money 
Um, this equity B is the one we're seeing right now. Like yeah. all of it. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's putting yeah. employees in some tough spots. That's it's crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, like the founder of fast. They're just doing like a collateralized loan against your equity. Well, there's, it's not, it's usually not that bad, but there's, there's a lot of different things going on. There's some that are a little bit more easier on the employees. There was a, yeah. a founder. I can't remember if it was Bolt or fast. They're both shit goes. Um, but I think it was fast and, I mean, this is like peak 2021. Mm -hmm. I mean, just at the height of everything. and They're worth what, like, a few billion? Yeah. And he come out with like this, you know, he's on Twitter and he's like, we're reinventing the way that we provide liquidity to our employees and essentially provided their employees with loans mm -hmm. um, to exercise their, uh, their options. And then the company just, I mean, went south, lost right. all of its value. And so now these uh, employees have a, um, a piece of uh, very toxic debt yep. that um, is, is now on their, on their personal balance sheet. And it's not even backed by options that have any uh, terminal value because the, the company has gone down in valuation. And so, I mean, just completely puts their employees in a bad position because now your equity is worthless and you have this uh recourse debt on that's rough on top of it yeah so let's talk about let's talk about vesting what are you yeah. what are you saying like what is what is standard what are the best practices what are things to look out for i think mostly uh we still see for for employees for your vesting with the cliff um if you're doing true upfront grants maybe you don't have the cliff if you're if you're giving equity to board members or consultants you want to consider what's their job are they working for, are they doing a one-year project for me are they doing a three-year project for me it's a one-year project that maybe it's fair like they'll vest over the course of a year on whatever the grant is mm -hmm. but we try to keep it pretty standard for employees you know there's all sorts of bells and whistles you can have like uh what happens on a change of control or you know can they early exercise uh you know early exercise is something you know early in the company's life that can be um attractive because the share price is so low. And so maybe somebody could afford to write that check and own mm -hmm. the shares immediately. Yeah. Um, even, and then they'll vest through it. And that's, again, it's, there's some things you have to do to make that work, but it's, we, we see that quite a bit. Uh, but for the most part, you know, standard vesting over four years, I think that's been, it's still been the market. We, some people get creative, but that's usually what we say. Yeah, so, so one of the, one of the things that I saw, I've seen this multiple times. So I want to bring this up specifically because yeah, yeah. I've seen this in energy tech where I've seen, I'll talk to a founder, they're, they're going out and they're wanting to raise money. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk a little bit about, you know, who's involved and the other founders and stuff. And I've seen multiple times where they'll say, oh, we've got 30% of the cap table is held by an advisor who is not actively involved in right. the business. This is like a some person who says they're well-connected or whatever. They're not actually putting any money in whatsoever. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing on, because we, we kind of have our own kind of philosophy on, on what that's really worth. Yeah. In the market. I'm kind of curious what you've seen. Well, I mean, I, if you, if, if that's an advice, I guess it depends on how much value they're adding to the company, but it's similar to the, the <laughs> no, I know it provides that much. Uninvestable at that point. <laughs> similar to the founder that that's left that you didn't subject to vesting and they get to walk away with a quarter of the cap table. Yeah. It's the same issue. You've got a big chunk of the cap table that's tied up with somebody that's not, not offering that commensurate level of value or didn't earn that amount of value. Yep. And so your investors are going to be, you know, there's gonna be a little side eye there. Yep. And uh, because at the end of the day, the investors are going to want to come in and create an option pool to incentivize the employees to help their investment go up. 
uh, and they want people. They don't want people taking a big chunk of the cap table that don't really add value, uh, especially in the common stock level. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about you get to Series A. Okay. Stage. You know, you've built something. Maybe have a little bit of traction. Um, maybe raise a little bit of uh, seed funding. Now you're going into Series A. Um, let's say that hey, you've put together a great pitch deck. You've got interest. And I'm I'm just gonna like talk out of my my personal experience. Yeah. Like, what should be in your data room? Like, what's what's an impressive data room um, from a, from a legal perspective? I think it depends on who your investor is. I mean, if 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 you're in kind of doing a uh, a consortium and no one's really interested in doing a ton of diligence on you, you just put the basic stuff out there. You're going to have a purchase agreement with representations and warranties that is a disclosure schedule behind that. So anything that's on the disclosure schedule should be in the data room. Mm -hmm. But if you're, if you're going to, you know, a Silicon Valley fund or a, or a Texas venture fund, you know, honestly, um, it, I mean, again, it depends on the kind of business. If you're direct to consumer, you're not going to have a lot of customer contracts, right? If you're, Enterprise software, you might have a ton, but they're all in the same form. Uh, all of that that basic piping for your business should be in the data room because they're not just doing legal diligence; they're going to be doing business diligence. Yeah. And to your point, the earlier you have a data room, even if it's sort of on a on freeware, and you're keeping track of it, and you've got internal controls, to just, then the easier it's going to be for you to create something for a third party to see under NDA. Yeah. Um, so keeping track of all those documents, keeping like clean HR files, having a folder with every employee on, you know, yeah. with all their, you know, th that's super important and it'll make the data room that much easier. I, you know, I think, uh, um, you should go in not, you know, not hiding the ball on anything. Yeah. Um, because they're going to, people are going to find out and it's worse if they find out after the investment, um, for lots of reasons. Yeah. Some out of commentary on the data room and just being organized from the get go um, we had an attorney that helped us out in the early stages mm -hmm. and he was just like adamant on, Hey, I want you all to keep all your legal documents, like really organized because it looks very impressive when a company comes to acquire and you can just open up a data room and you have everything here. He's like, I can't tell you how long or how far that goes in the M and A yeah. process. And, um, so we personally use notion and have a whole legal yeah. data room over there where all of our legal docs are over there. And financial statements and things of that nature. And, um, you can use Google drive too. Um, it's a great way, but just having like a organized file that way, you know, put together our data room and I dumped in our legal documents, our cap table, our financial model, and you can just pull all of that stuff in there pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah. And I, you know, make sure that whatever data room you're using is going to, it's secure. Um, you know, I, I think they fixed it, but there was, I won't name it in case I get the wrong one, but there was a, well-known sort of data free freeware database freemium and and in their terms of service it basically said look if we get subpoenaed to release your information we're going to do it yeah and uh that's not great but uh <laughs> you know at the end of the day look again be practical you don't want to spend twenty five thousand dollars a year on a data room if you're a series c or a series a company but you know down the line you may want a data room that's that you yeah, know, it has that many bells and whistles if you're going through an M&A process or an IPA. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, always got to take it with a grain of salt yeah. of where you're at and what resources you exactly. have in, in the early stages when there is no money in a company. I mean, you you use what you have and, right. and do what you have to do. And so, um, you know, it's even like for us as a company, like we just dropped, you know, like eight grand on Carta. It's <laughs> like two years ago, I'd be like, 
dude, hell no. Yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. we don't have eight grand to drop on Cardone. So it's just always kind of evolves with the company. I think so, one of the, like the big challenges that you know, we haven't faced this lately, but in the early stages is the big question of like, how do you pay yourself? Yeah. Right? Do you, do you, are you a W2 as a founder? Are you K1? Because I remember thinking back in the early days, like we weren't W2 for years. Yeah. And then you go to like, buy a house or a car and then you can't finance anything. And it's like, you're kind of just screwed, you know, as a founder. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious how, like what y'all's advice on what, what's, I mean, maybe that evolves yeah. as like, you know, maybe your pre-revenue, but then you have a little bit of money. How do you guys think about that? Well, um, we'll stick with Delaware corporations cause LLCs are yeah. much yeah. more complicated. So no K ones with Delaware corporations, but, um, you know, as a technical matter, you should be paying yourselves the minimum exempt salary, which in Texas is like, 36,000 a year or something right now. Again, it's totally impractical, impractical for a company with no money to pay themselves. So yeah. there's usually like, it's usually kind of, you know, I'll, I'll never give this advice to do this, but we just understand that like founders are going to work for free for a while. Mm -hmm. But that the inflection point is really when you hire, start hiring those first people um, that are real employees, not contractors, you got to start paying them. And that means you probably should start paying yourself. Um, and so that, that, that's, again, that's always tough because where's the money going to come from? Uh, <laughs> and, and, and that all being said, you know, as long as you understand that, and as soon as you're able to get some money, there's, there's ways to remediate. I, I'd say, honestly, sometimes it never, it, there is no remediation. It's just, okay, we've got the money now. Now we're going to start doing it right. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's nickels and dimes, but the, the founders, they will, there's this presumption that like, you guys know what the deal is. But at the end of the day, if you start hiring employees and you're not paying them, that that's that's a problem. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, you get Series A, um, you go out, you raise an institutional round from some VCs, uh, some things change in the business because, you know, maybe before that you raised through a safe note. Yeah. Um, which if you're not familiar with safe note, it's just a uh, simple agreement for future equity. So it's not an actual equity investment until um, it converts at a Series A mm -hmm. or a um, um, acquisition, but now your investors maybe have a board seat, you know, they have voting rights, yeah. they have all of these, uh, different, uh, uh, rights that come along with the term sheet. And so there's some fundamental changes in the way that the business operates right. now. Let's talk about that a little bit. And, you know, the, like the board meeting processes and things that change from that seed stage to now. Yeah. Having, I mean, having from, a Man, from an operational perspective, hopefully, you know, you, you don't have a real draconian investor that needs to be all up in the business, like all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't usually see that series A. Yeah. Occasionally it happens depending on who the investor is. But, you know, generally speaking, what you've agreed to is you've agreed that um, their equity position is going to be protected through both through their right to block future equity rounds under certain circumstances and um, you know, they've got anti-dilution, the ability to keep up all of that stuff. Uh, then from a board perspective, they have a board member. And uh, that means that they've got to vote on, you know, fundamental issues for the company. Like, you know, so usually at the Series A round, the founder appointed board members will still outnumber the, the, the preferred director. Mm -hmm. But sometimes in the docs, there'll be certain things that say, you can't do this without the preferred director also agreeing, or you can't do this without the Series A vote also agreeing to it. And so the, it just depends on what you know, how much controls that, that investor wanted in the company when you did the round. And in, as far as preparing for the board meetings, I think early on when you just have like one investor, 
Um, they're, they're pretty straightforward. I mean, I think what I would tell people about board meetings is I sit in I probably about 12 to 15 a quarter and it doesn't sound very fun. Sometimes it is, sometimes <laughs> it's not. Uh, I was joking about this the other night, but uh, I've got some clients that can run them in two hours and these are unicorns. I've got other ones that I, I think the, the normal is three to four. I've got one that every single time it's an all day thing. Yeah. Now it's, there's always some really cool things going on, but it's all day. And, uh, um, wouldn't recommend that unless, yeah. you know, you have the confidence to, um, to make that happen. But I, it's always sort of the two to three hours is a sweet spot. Yeah. So, um, but one of the things you'll, you should do is talk with your investor board member. How do you want to see the numbers? What are the key KPIs that you want to see in the board meeting? And you're going to have a couple board meetings where they go, okay, I see what you're doing on this slide. Next, next board meeting, I want you to show me this. Mm-hmm. And I want you to send this to me via email after the board meeting too. I want you to, I want you to frame it this way instead. And, uh, and so you'll learn what that board member wants to see. Yeah. Uh, as you get more rounds and maybe you have more investor investors on your board, it gets even more complicated. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it gets a little more adversarial, uh, frankly, uh, but, uh, yeah. um, ask questions, prepare, don't drop surprises in the board meeting. Um, if, if, uh, if you do, it's not going to come, it's not going to, uh, come across very yeah. well. And, yeah. uh, um, and I, I just don't be afraid to ask questions. You, you, you know, you're an investor for a VC fund. You sit on a dozen boards. What do you want me, what do you want to see in a board meeting? Yeah. And then we'll, we'll cater to that with our own color on it. And then we'll, we'll just work from there. Yeah. yeah. I like that. That's really good advice. So let's talk about as companies are scaling mm-hmm. and, um, you know, let's kind of say that, you know, maybe you've raised a series B, series C, yeah. or maybe you're just growing within cash flow and there's two options. Um, you know, maybe someone comes in and wants to make an offer for acquisition. Maybe you're going IPO route. Let's talk about the acquisition because I think mm-hmm. it's more, um, realistic for a lot of companies, especially yeah. like if your company's in that you know, 30 million to hundred million dollar range, you know, there's a big pool of companies out there that could, uh, acquire you. So let's talk about that. Um, that's actually something I'm interested yeah. in. So company comes in, in here and wants to acquire digital wildcatters. What do we need to start looking for? Um, well, so le- I'll presume you didn't run a process. You just had an unsolicited offer kind of for, for, for you guys. Yeah. And, unsolicited okay. offer. Yeah. I mean, look, hopefully like we talked about your data room, you've got your stuff set up so you can put a data room together really quickly They're If it's unsolicited, they're going to be putting a term sheet down, call your lawyers. Don't negotiate the term sheet without the lawyer. Sell side. That's usually kind of obvious. I, and I do a lot of buy side and we'll get a term sheet that's signed and they hand it to us. And I'm like, what just happened? Yeah. Um, but, uh, there's a lot of stuff you can do on the sell side and the term sheet stage to, uh, prevent getting locked up under exclusivity with this buyer uh, under terms that you would never have agreed to. And so, um, you can expect, especially in this context, to if you sign a term sheet, to be under exclusivity for sixty to one hundred twenty days. I think ninety is, you know, well, forty-five to sixty is probably the low end, and then you know, ninety is probably the high end. Meaning but you can't go out and shop the deal. Can't go and shop the deal. Yeah, exactly. And uh, um, you know, I think you, you're going to want to uh, make sure your boards. Obviously, you're not going to even have signed the term sheet unless your investor director and your investors on board with it, mm-hmm. because almost certainly the early stage they have a blocking right on on uh, exits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, later stage we're able to like dilute that blocking right sometimes as company counsel, but early stage almost always there's a protective provision that you can't sell the company without the uh, Series A approval. 
um, you got to realize what the return profile is for your uh, venture capital investor. Like, like, you know, they're wanting to make a 50 to one, 75 to one return. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, maybe not that high, but, but yeah, if 20 X minimum. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to understand that if they've only been in the company for a couple of years and you get this offer, it may not be good enough for them. You guys might be ready to exit as founders, but Mm -hmm. I mean, you took the venture capital money, you knew what you were getting into and what, what the exit that they saw was now, Maybe things haven't been going that well, and the and the and the and the uh, fund is ready to exit then too. But usually, that soon the funds yeah. don't want to see that return profile we talked about. So make sure everyone's on the same page. Um, you know, yeah. Outside of that, I mean, I think obviously get somebody that knows how to do M and A on the on the legal side. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know. Unsolicited, you probably don't need to hire a banker advisor. That's what I was going to ask. Do you go get an investment bank and and have them represent you? I mean, it's like unsolicited and, and, you know, let's just say it's a 30 to $100 million acquisition seems kind of, I want to go pay bankers. Yeah, I think think in that context, my banker friends will slap my hands here, but like uh, in that context, I, I don't think it makes sense. And one of the things you can do if you've got a good relationship with your VC board member, is use them as the bad cop. You know, they're 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 exiting. You're you might be, especially if it's a strategic, you may be working for this company mm-hmm. after this is going on. Yeah. So you, you want to keep a really good relationship. And those negotiations can get tough yeah. sometimes. And um what we often do is like if the company doesn't have a banker, because a banker usually will play this role if, yeah. it's, if it's a good banker. Yeah. Um have your VC director. If, if if everyone's on board with the sale, have them play the bad cop. So yeah. you guys can be the good cop, the founders. Yeah. And uh it, it helps the negotiations. Cause what it, it, and it makes sense to the buyer too. Is like I've got these founders. I like these guys. I want to work with these guys on a go forward. Um, and and all the VC guys worried about is his return. All he cares about is the money. And return. Yeah, and, and so yeah. the buyer knows that. And yeah. he, and so he knows he's going to have to appease that guy. And not only are they concerned about the return, they're concerned about their exposure post closing. Yeah. And so that's the other thing. Again, you can make them the bad cop. And yeah. Uh, um, I've seen a lot of deals go well by kind of having some kind of dynamic like that. Yeah. yeah. No, that's great advice. I mean, cause you have this essentially buffer that allows you, the founders to maintain your relationship with the acquirer, especially like you said, if there's earnouts and things. Yeah. So, uh, and you got to run that. the company during that time too. I mean, that's yeah. the other, that's the other thing that's tough. And so that's, w- that's where bankers can really help. But yeah. again, unsolicited, you know, maybe not, but obviously if you're running a process, the bankers can take that over while you're, yeah. So um, let's, let's, let's dive into that. Yeah. Right? So not unsolicited U.S. founders are ready to exit. How should we be thinking about investment banks? Um, well, I, I similarly don't even start a process without, uh, um, your, you know, your, your investor, Talking your investors, series A on yeah. board with it, but, yeah. uh, it may be BC, whatever your board, you know, yeah. make sure everyone's aligned. If you go into a process and people aren't, aren't into it, then, um, it's going to come out and the valuation is going to get low, be lower than you want. All of that stuff. Uh, um, the, the, the bankers I like the best, they're less transactional and more relationship so they can get in with companies early. So I think if you're a founder and you get introduced to bankers, keep those relationships up, let, let them take you out. Like, you know, let them tell, you know, to the extent it's not confidential, keep them up with your company. Um, when, when bankers come in to do the deal and to get out, um, 
it, it can work. It's fine. I've seen really good deals happen that way. But sometimes it's like, okay, I've got the deal signed up. They're under exclusivity. They turn it over to the lawyers and management to do the rest of the deal. Mm-hmm. And then it's like sometimes we'll be getting calls. For the, it's almost like the bankers representing the buyers at that point because they want their fee. Yeah. <laughs> um, th- that's few and far between, but I've run into that before. Yeah. But, but usually what happens is they kind of disappear. Yeah. Um, you want one, you want a banker that's going to be willing to kill the deal if you get a term that you don't like, even though they're not going to get their fee. Yeah. Uh, because they know that y- they fought for you and that you'll come back to them the next time you want to run a process if for whatever reason the deal blows up. Yeah. And um, that you know, have that conversation. Are you going to be with me through the closing? Yeah. Uh, and fighting for everything that I want you it's to It's kind of funny for. how when you look at incentives like that, like I was just reminded of when we bought the domain for Collide and I used that broker and- the seller of the domain wanted like $30,000 and I was like, Hey, we'll pay you 10. And the broker's like, they're not going to take that. I'm like, offer it. Like you're supposed to be my broker. But then I realized <laughs> I was like, no, this dude wants me to pay the higher amount because he's getting i right. I'm not paying him a flat fee. I'm paying him a success fee. And so yeah. anyways, um, yeah, it's interesting to look at like incentives like that sometimes. And, um, you know, there's, I always really enjoy working with people who are just super honest and like, Hey, look, like, yeah, we may not make any money on this, uh, but those types of groups and companies and service providers always win my trust because I know that um, even if um, they may not benefit from it, they'll always tell us the, the the right thing to do. So I think that just comes down to working with yeah. good, honest groups. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an industry um, that can do real, real good for a, a company during a process just because they know the market, they know the players, they know... Uh, how the process is going to run. They're going to be able to, if they're good at it, they can play buyers against each other. Um, but it can also be, you know, there, there, there's some out there that, they look, they had one lucky deal where they got a massive fee and they're out there chasing fees and they'll maybe get one deal a year. And, you know, it's, um, yeah. you just have to, I really have to vet them, you know, make, make sure they're willing to introduce you to some people that they helped exit prior. And yeah. most of the good ones will. So real quick, ending this podcast uh let's talk about the ipo process mm-hmm. when ipo digital wall cutters and take it take it public what's that what's that process look like you know we're gonna have to go through the s1 process and you know i know there's a lot of uh direct listings and SPACs out there yeah. now and so um depending on how we want to get listed on the market but let's say that we want to go public whether it's ipo or SPAC. um what is what is a company to be thinking about um, when going towards that route, and who should um, go that route in, in IPO? I mean, is there a is there a right size company that should be doing it? Yeah, that gets a little beyond me. That's more the, the the bankers and the finance guys, you know, what they'll say tell you. But look, right right now, if you're if you're not a unicorn, and you know, a couple times over, it's pr- pretty hard to go public and have a you know a, a trading price. It's going to be able to stay above what mm-hmm. um, what's required. Yeah. yeah, and so uh, I mean the key is, is it's not a six month process. You don't wake up and decide we're going to go public, hire your bankers, and go out. Um, the bankers are going to tell you, man, you've got four people on your board. It's all white males. You you've got um, you know you've got uh, no audit committee. You don't you haven't done an audit in two years. Like there's no way. So w- w- one of the things that the, most of the companies we work with that are going to go public, this has been a two to three year ramp up, and to the point where they're really running the company and they've hired the the, in, the internal controls to like run the company like a public company over the course of several quarters prior to doing even their org meeting, which is at the start of the IPO process. 
And then um, over that time, you build your board with different expertise. You build it, you create your committees, you uh, get SOX compliance, Sarbanes. I mean, there's all these things. It's it's a it's a massive process. Yeah. And uh, you know, from my perspective, uh, you know, it, it's not something. I think a lot of these companies that despacked uh, over the course of the last three years. Um, weren't ready to go public. And you're seeing that right now. Yeah, no, they, didn't. Uh, they didn't have the internal. And so they just, they scrambled the internal controls together as part of the, you know, what they signed the SPAC and then they scrambled the internal controls together. Now they're a public company and they just weren't ready. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's, uh, uh, you know, and, and I think the DSPAC is going to continue. I think that's, that's, that's one way to go public still. And it's going to be, it's going to continue to be, but yeah. Um, yeah, I think pretty much gonna, any company it's, yeah. DSPAC over the last two years, just getting crushed. So yeah, I mean, it, it just, it depends. I mean, it, it, it's, it was seen as an easier way to go public, and then over the course of about a twelve to fifteen month period, it became clear that it not wasn't necessarily. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, all super fascinating stuff. Um, you know, there's a ton of people that listen to this podcast. Sorry, I've got the hiccups, so I'm trying. To <laughs> no <look>. worries. <laughs> um, a lot of people that listen to this podcast that want to go out and build their own companies and. Um, you know, there's not a lot of content and resources that are tailored specifically mm -hmm. to startups in the energy space. And, um, you know, what's interesting is that even from an investor perspective, this industry has a lot of high net worth individuals yeah. that are quote unquote accredited investors that want to invest in startups, but they don't know what right. to look for. Um, you know, they don't know what a safe note is and, you know, things of that nature. And so, this is all super valuable information, both from an operator's perspective, but from people that want to invest in companies too. Um, if someone's out there and they're a startup or, um, you know, just any other company and they want to use Latham and Watkins, uh, where can they find, uh, you and the company? Sure. Um, or like, like website wise. Yeah. Or, website yeah, wise. Yeah, are, you so, on, are you sure. on LinkedIn? Are you yeah, on, I'm on LinkedIn? Uh, Scott Craig Bumble, on LinkedIn. Like what apps can yeah, they find you on? Yeah. <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I've also got a website uh, on LW.com. Uh, but if you search Scott Craig Latham and Watkins, you can find me. Cool. I mean, to your point. He's I, like, Google me. Yeah, I'm yeah. Kind, of a, kind of a big yeah, deal. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, it's also like, I mean, there's like two websites that'll come up. So yeah. don't worry. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, what we're finding in energy tech is there's a lot of people that want to invest in a profile company that they haven't in the past. Um, and, you know, they're, they're dipping their toe into venture and they have not, that's not something they're used to. Uh, so it's not just educating the companies these days, it's educating the investors. And yeah. uh, um, we hope to just create deals and create a really frothy uh, environment for deals getting done. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be traditional venture capital yeah. um, necessarily. But yeah. there's an education process because when you do bump into it, you're going to want to have docs and have have your be ready for it. Be ready and prepared yeah, for yeah. it. Yeah. Well, dude, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on the podcast and drive down here from Austin. Really yeah. enjoyed it, man. Absolutely. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Yep. Thanks, if y'all enjoy this episode, make sure, make sure to share it with a friend, share it on LinkedIn, uh, send it to anyone that is out there building or thinking about starting a company. This is great information. We will catch y'all on next week's episode. Come, 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 come.